Yeah. Uh, uh, we have this ongoing um, conversation in my house. Where the force is strong with my family. Let's just put it that way. So my, I have three sons, and they're all Star Wars fans. They're all Jedis and uh, growing every day. And um, we I just have this one rule around the Star Wars sort of uh, fanatical uh, behavior of my children. And it's this, uh, we're good guys. <laughs> we're good guys. So like, I'm all for the Star Wars uh, Jedi conversation, but like, we're not representing Sith Lords in our house. You know what I'm saying? Like, darkness has enough representation in this world. So if you're gonna come all Star Warsy, we're gonna be Jedis. And, uh, and, and we're the good guys. And my teenage son came home with a Darth Vader shirt on. He walked in the door, and I heard, because I said, dude, what are you doing wearing a bad guy shirt in our house? I mean, granted, Darth Vader was kayaking on the shirt, so there's that. I'll give him that. But I said, I thought we had an understanding, like an arrangement, like kind of rules of engagement in our house, like no dark lords on the Sith lords on the shirt. And my, my son looks at me, and he's like genuinely perplexed. He said, but mom, it's Darth Vader. I said, right. <laughs> it's Darth Vader. And he said, but he's a good guy. And I said, no, he's not. He's a bad guy. And my son said, no, mom, he's a good guy. And I said, no, he's not. He's a bad guy. I'm like, honey, this is not rocket science. When Darth Vader comes on the screen, like minor music starts playing. <laughs> it's like a universal sign that he's a bad guy. Like everybody knows he's a bad guy. And we had this conversation, I would say, a heated discussion about whether or not Darth Vader was a good guy or a bad guy. And then it struck me. It struck me that when I was introduced to Darth Vader, literally my first introduction to Darth Vader was with that music, dun, 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 and like the stranglehold, you know what I mean? Where he was just like strangling people to death with his dark thoughts. I mean, he was a bad guy, like no question about it. But when my son was introduced to Darth Vader, he was introduced to Anakin. He actually saw Darth Vader through the lens of a promising Jedi future, of this potential Jedi Knight that was going to actually realize his potential and bring balance to the Force. So when my son looks at Darth Vader's life, he kind of sees the Darth Vader Sith Lord part. It's just like a, a little blip on, on his trajectory as a Jedi Knight. You understand, I think this matters in the scripture that we just read. I think, I think it matters because I've been learning so much from the life of Judas. Now, usually, whenever we hear, and even actually the gospel writers, whenever they introduce Ju Judas specifically into a story, it's like, cue the music. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, really, like Judas, he's a Judas. Like, Judas has become sort of this weed. The lens by which we see the life of Judas is through the bad guy lens. But what if we took a couple of minutes to just have a look at Judas through the promising, potential disciple that he was? What if we had a look at uh, the young Anakin Judas, the one who spent time with Jesus, the one who was invited to follow Jesus, the one who was included in the disciples, the one who was sent out with the authority of Jesus to go and to heal the sick and to cast out demons and, and, and to announce the good news. And when he came back, Jesus himself threw his head back and laughed and said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I mean, what, what if we remember, just took the time to kind of just look at Judas from the life of this promising, potential leader, apostle, disciple, friend of Christ? 
what would that help us do? See, I, I think that prayer is an invitation to devote ourselves to Christ. Prayer is an invitation every day of devotion, of attention, of love, of connection, of attachment. In, in, in this story we just read, the attention, of course, is given to the person that is the hero of the story, the disciple extraordinaire, which is almost always, by the way, a woman. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there, but it, it, it's true. You know, just, it, it, and the exemplary disciple, the one that was actually moving towards Christ as Christ was moving towards death. What a fantastic time to have a look at the scripture in the Christian calendar we're in right now. The preparation of Jesus, the devotion to Jesus, not just in glorious moments, but also in moments of suffering, moments of death, moments where the trajectory is going down. Here's a woman pouring out her very best, a devotion. We know that. We, we understand sort of that. And there's another account in, in Mark's gospel in chapter 14 that I really love. It's in a different person's house, but it's the same exemplary disciple, a female disciple who takes the alabaster jar and breaks it and pours it out on Jesus. Do you remember? And, and, and the same objective, uh, objection is raised. Why have we done, like, th this is ridiculous, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why those objections are raised. It's, it's, it's fascinatingly undignified. It's, it's like scandalously um, intimate. I mean, just scandalously, in I mean, they're breaking all kinds of social norms around women and men and relationships and discipleship and, and, and all these things. So the disciples are kind of just scandalized in general in both places. And in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says this. It's really fascinating. He says, not only is this the right thing to have done, like not only is this a great honor, not only is this a proper devotion or attention to who I am, not only is this like a tracking of where I'm going, of a willingness to move towards me as I move towards the cross. Not only is that what's happening here, but everywhere the gospels preach, Jesus says, this story will be told. And you're like, what? Like, I don't know about you, but like, I'm like, what? Everywhere the gospels preach, this story will be, I don't know how many of you preach the gospel or very often or who you preach it to, but I haven't often led with the story of an alabaster box. I haven't said, I have to tell you about Jesus, but first I need to tell you about a woman who like breaks this jar and like anoints Jesus. I, I, but I think that what Jesus is actually getting at is the act itself of devotion. I, I think Jesus is getting at the posture of the exemplary disciple, like what this actually is. This attachment, this connection, this devotion, this tracking with Jesus as Jesus tracks his way to do the will of God. I, I came across a, a TED talk on your brain in love. I don't know if you've read this, but a neurologist was really interested to know like what happens to people when they're in love because we all know they're weird. Like people in love do weird, crazy things. So she was just uh, from a scientific perspective saying like, I want to know what's happening in the brain of people who are in love. So she got a whole bunch of volunteers and they were willing to put themselves in an MRI machine and they said, you know, that we're in love and they, they put them in an MRI machine and she measured all of the results and she discovered that in everyone that went into an MRI machine who said they were in love, three areas of their brain lit up. The same areas of their brain, pleasure, risk, and attachment. Pleasure, risk, and attachment. Those were the areas of a brain that light up when you're in love. Now, if you apply the in love sort of neurological study that's done, if you could put 
uh, these women in an MR, uh, MRI machine and measure what's going on in their brain when it came to Jesus, you would discover that they are people who are in love. I, I, they're not doing what they should do. There's not a duty. What's the opposite of pleasure? If, by, by all means, it's duty, isn't it? It's a have to. It's an obligation. The opposite of pleasure is an obligation. It's a duty. It's a fulfillment. And, and, and that's not what's required. Je Jesus, there's no requirement of giving your best perfume or the most expensive thing you own and just wasting it on Jesus or time or whatever it might be. There's, there's no requirement for that. These women are doing it for pleasure. These women are also doing it with great risk. I mean, in that culture, that society, we know this is the backup plan. This is the dowry for later. This is like the savings account. Like, this is the RRSP. Like, this is the retire. Like, this is the other option, the option B, in case this whole Jesus thing doesn't work out. There should be a backup plan. All the wise people know that. But this is their backup plan poured out on the feet of... This is risk, man. They're all in. But it, it's also all about relationship. It's about attachment. They're all in, not just because they're crazy. They're all in because it's about Jesus. They're all in, not only just to get something out of this, not to like make it in the Bible stories, like what are the remains unnamed? I mean, they're not in it just to kind of make a name for themselves or like to be known of people who are devoted. They're in it because it will connect them to Jesus. They're in it because it will attach them to the person of Christ. They're in it for Jesus. I feel like the invitation of prayer on a daily basis is an invitation to attach ourselves. You know, the Jesuits have this like little rule that they use, right? Like every decision that you possibly have to make, even today, is a decision that will either bring you closer to Jesus or a decision that will move you away from Christ. And that as complicated as our decisions are in a complex world, there could actually be the most simplistic way of making a decision in your life, which would be the decision to say, will this move me forward towards Christ, to attach myself to Christ, to devote myself to Christ? Will this move me in that direction or will it move me away? What's fascinating about the story in, in John's gospel, the one that we read today, is that they named Judas as the one who takes objection. Who says, like, this is ridiculous. It's a waste. If I'm honest, I mean, I, I grew up in the Salvation Army, so I resonate with the words of, uh, I, I resonate with the words of Judas. I'm like, it totally is a waste, man. There are people who need to be fed. I mean, the poor need, but what, what the gospel's getting at, what Jesus is getting at, is that this isn't just, like, a conversation about, like, what's happening out here. It's not a conversation. It's about conversation about what's happening in here. If there's an opposite brain from a brain that's in love, it's a brain that's not in love. Instead of pleasure, it would be duty. Instead of risk, it would be safety. Instead of attachment, it would be detachment. And what I think happens, at least in, in my trajectory in the life of Judas, is, is we forget, see, we think that Judas's defining moments are these big moments. I, I think we think this about every defining moment in every life of disciple, that they're big moments. That, that they're moments where they have to make big decisions, usually in public. They're, they're moments where, like, you know, in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, Judas comes and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. And we always look at, we're like, that's when he betrayed Jesus. That's when it happened. That's, that's when Judas, that traitor, dun, 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 that's when that happened. But that's not when that happened. That, that, that's not when that happened. 
when that happened, that detachment, that pulling away from, that separating himself from the person of Christ, I mean, that happened in tiny little moments every day for some time. This is one of them. A a moment that was a little too undignified, a moment that was a little (laughs) too scary, a moment that was a little too intimate, a moment that was an invitation to move towards Christ as Christ moved towards death. Judas distances himself. Using judgment and criticism, I mean, using whatever, detachment, using even sacrificial language, using like really churchy ideas, like caring for the poor, disguising it however he wants to disguise it, but he moves away from the person of Christ. Detachment, safe, duty, religious obligation. That moment right there, if you could just freeze the movie... (laughs) And we could just freeze it and say, that's the moment right there. Nursing resentment. A a selfish, sinful gain. You know, what about me when this thing doesn't work out? What about my reserves? I mean, even this idea of just taking things when nobody's noticing. Selfish things. I mean, not big, huge, defining moments, but daily invitations to devotion. A, A daily invitation to devote yourself to Christ. How might that change some things? When I was um, uh, working and living in, a, in a, the downtown east side of Vancouver, um, which is a drug-addicted community, there's about 7,000 injecting drug users in about seven city blocks. It's a containment area. There's a, a, a widespread problem with drug abuse and infectious diseases. So the, the city made this kind of area where all those uh, drug addicts can live and use freely without fear of being arrested. And so it creates this kind of real, uh, really horrible situation. And uh, I was called to to move in there and live there and start a community among those uh, beautiful people. And uh, the way that my, you know, Vancouver is one of the nicest cities in the world, one of the most beautiful cities of the world. The downtown east side is right downtown, right actually sandwiched beside one of the most uh, touristy spots in Vancouver, a place called Gastown. All the uh, cruise ships dock at the top of waterfront there, and they walk down Gastown. And Gastown's a place where you can buy, like, a T-shirt for $100, um, you know, I mean, it's like cobblestone, it's like beautiful, it's a really nice, cozy Starbucks uh, that's uh, got fantastic coffee, and, and so I, my apartment building was, uh, if I felt kind of like Mother Teresa, I could go out my front door, and I would literally be right in the thick of, there's a Hells Angels strip club across the street from me, there's someone injecting drugs on my sidewalk, there's, you know, all of the things that you would imagine in that neighborhood happening right outside my front door. But if I felt a little bit more like I needed a warm-up, usually in the form of a latte, I could get out my back door. Don't judge me. I feel like you're judging me. I, <laughs> I could go out my back door, and just like a block away is Gastown, this famous touristy cobblestone, super clean, $100 t-shirt, but normal uh, costed latte. And I could just warm up uh, with Jesus like he invited me to some days to do. So one day, I was. this is how I started my day. I went out my back door, and I went up to Gastown. Now, here's the deal. As you can imagine, if you have 7,000 injecting drug users in one area that's right against this beautiful touristy spot, you have some problems, right? And uh, so what the Gastown Business Association did is they created a security force. They, they just bought, they bought security guards, a, a force, 
to basically just patrol Gastown to keep all of the downtown east side residents out of it, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. So usually if I was going to go to Starbucks in Gastown, it also meant a reprieve from not only the neighborhood, but also the people in the neighborhood in which I lived. Mr. Rogers had not adequately prepared me for those neighbors. So I was going this day to Starbucks to start my day, and I was surprised to run into my friend Annie in Gastown. She was busking. She was playing a guitar. She was mentally ill. She was also a drug addict, and she was a friend of mine. She's a crazy-looking, like, crazy dreaded hair and, like, long fingernails. I mean, she was super, like, wide-eyed all the time, you know. You would be afraid of her if you saw her, and it wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, it wouldn't be terrible. And uh, so I said, Annie, I'm, I'm shocked. What are you doing here? And Annie looks at me with all the skill of a prophet and says, I could ask you the same question. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, she said she was trying to raise some money through, you know, busking, through playing some tunes, but she wasn't making any money. So she invited me to give it a try. So I gave it a try and I wasn't making any money. And finally, I just said to Annie, look, Annie, like, let's just, do you want to just come? I was on my way to Starbucks. Do you want to come get a latte with me? And Annie looks at me, she says, I thought you would never ask. So we're walking up to Starbucks together, and uh, that's when we see it. We see the security force, these two security guards, they're escorting out this guy. And that this guy is, he's not happy. I mean, he is spitting and swearing and drunk. I mean, he's disorderly. He's just like out of sorts. He's so ticked off. And these security guards are flanking him on either side. And they're escorting him out of the gas town area. And Annie sees it first. She looks like, like drama, right? This is what she's made for. And uh, she looks at him and just, and I'm looking at him and I'm looking at her looking at him and I'm sort of like everything kind of starts to go slow-mo, right? Because I know something's going to happen. It's going to be hard and dramatic and I don't know how to stop it, but Annie just goes straight towards this guy, like literally runs directly past the security guard, grabs him by the scruff of the neck and looks in his eyes and she says, I really love you and then she just starts kissing him like and I don't mean like nicely I mean like <laughs> I mean like unhygienically like I mean like I even remembering this occasion want to brush my teeth right now that I mean like full-on like all of it all of it all the it's not even pg-13 just full-on these security guards literally like i mean just kissing kiss it's not ending it's like get a room like there's no room to be got so we're just like ah so these security guards both take instinctively like, they just step back you know and they're just like busy kissing and the security guards looking at me going like what do i do i'm like i do i is i i don't know like is there a charge for excessive love? I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> if it was a Methodist church, maybe they could charge them with public displays of affection. I, I don't know. But anyway, uh, this goes on for some time until finally uh, Annie stops kissing this guy. This guy, I remember, he just comes totally to his senses. I mean, no longer sober, no longer upset. He just looks at Annie and goes, I love you too, man. And we're all just still standing there. Like, nobody knows what to do. The security guards don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You know, Annie is like, do I have to do everything? You know, I'm pretty sure she says, she just looks at Dave. She goes, Dave, this is the guy. She says, I got some good news. Dave's like, what is it? And she said, Danielle's going to take us to Starbucks. <laughs> and so Dave and Annie and I went to Starbucks that day to start our day. 
in the way of Christ. In the way of Christ. Annie was not obligated to care for Dave. Was in it for her. <laughs> not fame. Annie was not obligated. It, it wasn't duty that moved her. It, it wasn't uh, obligation. It wasn't Christian niceties. It wasn't like, oh, gee, I should be merciful today. It was complete devotion. It was, it was love. It was attention. It was attachment. It was the unpleasant, scandalous, unhygienic love of God. It was an invitation of a love that's transformational. You put Annie's brain in an MRI machine, you're going to find a lot of things in there, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but you're going to find pleasure, risk, and attachment lit up all the time. Because Annie was in love. Annie's in love. And she was in love with God. She was in love with Dave. She was in love with people. She was in love with the opportunity. I, I, I want to live a life. And this, I think, is what prayer invites us to. I want to live a life that's devoted. And by that, I don't mean more things I ought to do. I don't mean duty and obligation. I don't mean religious. I, 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 don't, I don't mean safe, predictable, and mundane. I don't mean more boundaries. I, I don't mean slightly detached, but just behind. I, I want to live a life of prayer that leads me to a life that's a life of love, a life of devotion. See, I, I cannot change the trajectory of Judas's life. I wish I could. I wish I could go to Judas, you know, when he goes to the temple and he says, like, oh, man, I did not see where this was going. I did not know that in these tiny moments of detachment and these decisions I made, it was going to lead to that. Like, I, I, here's all the money back. You remember the religious people saying to Judas, like, what's that to us? It's not our problem. We don't care. I wish I could take Judas by the hand and say, it's not too late. It's, it's not too late. This moment is as good as any other moment you're ever going to get. Like, let's find our way instead of to religious institutions or instead of to our own self-loathing. Maybe we could find our way to the king of love who even still now is dying on a cross for you. Not because he has to, by the way. Not because he had to, not out of some divine sense of obligation or duty, by the way. The scriptures tell us it was for the joy set before Christ that he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. For the joy set before him, for the pleasure, what was his pleasure, what was the joy? It was relationship. It was attachment. For the pleasure set before him. He risked literally everything he had for relationship with you. It's not too late. That's what I wish I could whisper to Judas and lead him to the cross where he could see what love looks like, what devotion is, what it might mean to change the trajectory of his life. I, I cannot do that for Judas, but here's what I can maybe do. I could do it for me. I, I, could, I could tell you it's not too late. It's not too far gone. You're not stuck in duty or obligation or safety or detached religiosity. It's not too late to attach yourself, to move in, to decide today, this day, not waiting for some glorious moment 
where everything goes slow-mo and it, it becomes obvious that you're either a good guy or a bad guy, but this moment today to move yourself towards a person of Christ as he moves himself toward you. This is what could happen today. I, I think this is what prayer offers us, is this day an opportunity to move towards the person of Christ, to be that person, <laughs> scandalous, undignified, joy-filled, pleasure-based, risky, but attached to the person of Jesus. Good guy or bad guy? It's undecided for you. That's why today matters. It's why today 